You're listening to the Sermon Podcast from Real Life, reaching the world for Jesus one person at a time. Thank you for joining us this week as we continue our teaching series on the book of Revelation. All right. Real Life? Yeah. <laughs> I feel like Sammy Hagar. Moscow! Uh, we're welcoming in Pullman this morning. Let's say hello to Pullman. I had somebody tell me last service or between the services that every time I welcome in Pullman, I do this. And they said, it's funny because so <laughs> it was like my empire. Uh, I, sorry, not, I didn't really mean anything by that. Um, we have got some work to do today, and I am excited. We are seriously Without question, one of my favorite chapters in the whole Bible, and it's so powerful to me, and I'm sure, I'm sure I won't be able to adequately convey all that it means to me, but I hope, I hope we can get a, maybe a good idea of why this is such a thing for me. But, but in order to do that, we need to back up and, and review just a little bit. If you'll remember, we're not doing the seven churches in this series because we've already done the seven churches. That... Um, series is available online in our sermons archive. You can go watch it. And I would encourage you to go watch it because Richard Bachman says that the, the book of Revelation is, is one book with seven introductions. And those letters are the seven introductions. And the book as a, as a whole doesn't just pull uh, off of one of them, it pulls off of all of them. And these seven churches are familiar with one another. They're connected. They're aware of what's going on in one another's communities. They, they know, at least they have the same pastor, and he's reporting back and forth about what's happening and all these things. And I want to talk about one that's particularly pertinent to the passage that we're looking at today, and that is to the church in Sardis. Now, I want to show you uh, some pictures of the synagogue in Sardis. Now, Sardis, the synagogue there is the largest synagogue ever found in the ancient world. It is huge. And if you've ever been to Israel, um, you'll, you've seen lots of synagogues. These don't hold a candle to this. So let me show you the first photo. This is the courtyard of the, of the synagogue. It is not we're not even inside the synagogue yet, even though there is walls all the way around it. Um, here's a fascinating thing. The, if you've been to Israel and you've seen the synagogue in Capernaum, which is one of the larger synagogues that you will see in Israel, that whole synagogue will fit inside this courtyard. Like, it's huge. The, interestingly enough, if you see the big building that's to the right-hand side and back, do you see that? The big tall walls there? That's not the synagogue. That's actually gymnasium. And this synagogue shares a wall with an open courtyard where people would go to gymnasium. Think university more than like basketball, but they would exercise in this courtyard nude, which raises all kinds of questions about is it okay for God's people to engage culture. On the other side and behind this synagogue is a strip mall. 
seriously, it's like shop after shop after shop after shop on this main road that goes through Asia Minor. And, and it goes through Sardis, and all of these shops are there on one side, the gymnasium's on the other side, and the synagogue's right in the middle. How does God want his people to engage these worldviews? Like, it's, it's this cool conversation that we're not even going to have. Um, but what's going on there? How is this not just any synagogue, massive synagogue? It's huge there. Now, if you go, see in the back in the center, there's an altar there. See that? If you step forward into that doorway, let's look at photo number two. This is the main room. And if you see behind the altar, there's an apse. That's what that's called. That concave shape there is an apse, which is where you would have things like uh, ornamental decorations and if you had a choir it would, or if you had other people that were involved in the service, there's an apse for that. So... Um, Totally stole that from Jordan Kaiser. He's like, I can't believe you didn't say that. I was like, I'm totally stealing that. It was an apps for that. So the second, the second time they got it, it's an apps. For those of you that still haven't gotten it, there's an apps for that. He just went to the app store and downloaded it. <laughs> anyway, so this, this synagogue is... Huge in the synagogue. Now, if we go forward to the altar and turn around and face back towards the courtyard, here's the next photo. And what I want you to see here is on the left-hand side uh, is what's called Moses' seat, and on the right-hand side is what's called the Torah closet. Now, if you know anything about synagogue service, you know um, that the, to- the scrolls are stored in the Torah closet, Okay, and so when they when they have the service, the person who's going to read the parasha, the the section of scripture that we've been reading together as a community all week, sits in Moses' seat, which is where Tory Gray is sitting right now in this picture. Um, I thought it was somebody else, but it's actually Tory Gray. Um, she'll be glad to know that we used her in the service. So the person who's going to read there sits there, and then the scrolls are in the Torah closet. At a point during the service, the the custodian or the hazan of the synagogue will go and get the scrolls and will bring them to the person sitting in Moses' seat. Now, Jesus references Moses' seat because it's really important. He says this. He says, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law sit in Moses' seat, so you must do what they say, but do not do what they do because they tie heavy burdens on people and will not lift a finger to help them. This is Moses' seat. Like, the person that sits in Moses' seat is important. Now, let me ask you this question. In a world that values the text the way that they do, how important is it for the person who is going to open the scroll to be worthy, to be clean, to be holy, ritually pure, not clean like take a bath, but have a right heart before God? How critical is it? This is the living word of God, and we're going to open it and speak God's words to God's people. How important is it for me to be right to do that? It's critical. You can imagine how devastating it would be to come to synagogue service And there was nobody that cared enough about being there to 
be holy. Nobody worthy to read God's word. And it raises an interesting question for us as we come into this place we call church. How hard did we work to prepare ourselves to be here this morning? Or did you just show up expecting that God was going to do all the work? Because the reality is we come here and many people are like, Lord, I need you to touch me. And I get that. I get that. I need you to change my heart. I need you to, to show me your presence. But maybe what we do here is way more about us giving something back to God than it is about God showing up and doing something in our own lives. What you have to understand is that your worship of God is the only thing that you can give him that he didn't give you first. So when you were singing the songs, were you just singing the songs? Were you on your phone checking stuff? Were you IGN or Snapchatting? Were you? Look, I'm in church. Look at me. Because here's the deal. If you... We miss the living word of God because we don't prepare our hearts. For many of us, our preparation is surmised in what am I going to wear? And we spend way more time looking in our closet than we do looking at the heart of God before we come. And I would just suggest that I don't think God really cares what you wear. Like, if you're like, I want to bring my best to the Lord. Okay, wear a suit. Do it. Do it. I don't think he cares. That's why I wear jeans with a big rip in them, right, and vans. Here's the thing. God wants your heart. And, and if we don't come prepared and then we leave and we so God didn't do anything. God's not there, Right? God wasn't in that place. Listen, God is fully present everywhere all the time. The question is, am I tuned in enough to experience it? So what are we doing here? Is anyone worthy to open the scrolls? And so above the Torah clause, or above the Moses seat, there was a plaque found at this synagogue in Sardis. And here's what the plaque said. Only he who is worthy take, open, read. Don't you dare assume that you can open the word of God in a way that is sacrilegious and expect anything to happen with it. Only he who is worthy because this is the living word of God. This is the mouth of God speaking words to you. What is it going to mean? Like, this isn't just a social gathering that we do here. This is something much, much deeper. And in the synagogue at Sardis, they wanted to communicate that reality. Only he who is worthy, take, open, and read. Scary business when we consider 
and I'm not accusing anybody because I don't know what you guys do in the morning, but I know how hard it is for me to even remember to prepare my heart to come here before I come here. Like, do we just run into the presence of God and expect Him to do all the work, or is there a preparation that I should go through? I am about to approach the creator of the universe, and I ought to do that with a healthy level of fear and respect. Only he who is worthy, take, open, and read. And with that in mind, I want to move into our passage. Now, last week, Paul talked to us about Revelation chapter 4. And in Revelation chapter 4, John begins his vision of the throne room. And in the throne room, there's 24 elders, and they all wear white, and they have crowns with pictures on them, just like Domitian had 24 people that followed him around and bowed down in front of him and said, worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power as they walked through the city of Ephesus. This happened historically And so John goes to the throne room and sees God on the throne of the universe with 24 elders who wear white and have crowns of pictures on them. Coincidence? No, it's not. Now, is this a literal picture of what heaven's really going to look like? I don't know, maybe, but what I do know is John is pulling off of real-world instances to try to communicate to these people, look, I've been to the throne room of the king of the universe, and Domitian does not sit on it. Hang in there. Keep fighting. Keep going. You have what it takes. And what's his appeal to what we have? Well, we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that. So let's go to Revelation chapter 5. And then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back and sealed with seven seals. Now, here's the thing. I want to talk to you about the scroll. The scroll is this hugely important thing because emperors, in fact, if you looked at the statue the, the, in the bump video, the revelation, the, the, this is a Caesar with a scroll in his hand because those scrolls are his divine words. Now, This is one of those things that's really interesting. Why is it written on the front and the back? Okay, and there's all kinds of speculation about this. Probably the the idea here, and I don't know, one person suggested that the idea here is that the reason why there's writing on the front side and on the back side of the scroll is because the God who holds it is way too big to contain on one side of the scroll. That's a good option. Another really good option is this. I don't know. I don't even have a good idea. Um, That's an equally valid option. We don't know why it's got writing on both sides of the scroll, but it does. And in his hand, he holds this scroll, and it's sealed with seven seals. Now, please understand the context of the first readers of this book. These are people who are really desperately asking the question, God, where are you? Because we are suffering, not because we're bad people, but because we follow you. Where are you? And in his hand, he holds a scroll. 
And the scroll explains everything. You want to read it? Let's read. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one. But but this is the scroll that explains it all. No one is worthy. There's no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and look into it. No one. But this is the answers. This is the thing that explains everything about what's going on and why we're suffering for following the God of the earth. With this somebody, no one, no one. And so John says, and I began to weep loudly. The Greek there says, and I wept and wept and wept. Because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and it's seven seals. Come on. Somebody gets to stand in our place and read the scroll. Somebody gets to make sense out of this for us. Who is it? And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. I thought he said lion. We'll have to talk about that. With seven horns and with seven eyes, not a lamb that I've seen, but that's another sermon for another day, which are the seven spirits of God sent through, out into all the earth. And he went to, took, and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and, the golden, and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. By the way, do you think that God hears your prayers their incense burning in heaven right now. Keep praying. Keep praying. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people from God for every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on earth. Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands. The Greek here says ten thousands upon ten thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Someone can open the scrolls. Someone can make sense out of all of this. 
Now, what we're going to see in chapters 6 and 7 is that as these seals get broken, things like the four horsemen of the apocalypse, right? Yay. These seals are not going to be pleasant for his people. But the one who is worthy shows us how to endure. As a lamb... Now, let's step back and talk about this for just a second. Why a lamb? So at one level, it's about the, the laying down of your life, right? I get that. And that's yes. And another level, it's about the sacrificial system and the call back to the guilt offering and the sin offering and all that. Yes. All of that, yes. But there's something else going on here that I want to make note of. And that is that every time God's people suffer greatly... Apocalyptic literature emerges, and it emerges out of this suffering and always calls back to former suffering. What is John alluding to with a lamb that was slain being our deliverance? Think about it for a second. Was there ever a time where God's people were enslaved by a powerful nation? And they had a lamb that they had to kill. And they painted their doorposts with the blood. And that lamb that was slain became their deliverance. So yes, is Jesus a type, an anti-type of with the lamb? Absolutely. But it's more than that. It's more than that. What's going on here is John reminding the people Look, this is not the first time we've been here. And what he says that is so powerful is that our ability to endure isn't some glad morning when this life is o'er. I'll fly away. Our ability, our strength, our power for enduring is that Jesus conquered death. So keep going. We have the fulfillment of the promise of the ages and people who didn't have it endured. If they can endure, so can you. Keep going. And that matters because the issues that these people are facing aren't the economies in the tank or hashtag not my president. They're not simple like that. They're not, what do we do with gay marriage or legalized pot or anything? They're not any of those things. These are people that are watching their family and friends be butchered for their faith in the creator of the universe. And what he's saying to them is, you can endure. Keep going. Keep going. This has all kinds of implications for us. But I want to land on four that I think are particularly important. So what we're going to do is move towards the Lord's table. Uh, those of you that are serving communion, go back and grab that, and you can start passing that out. If you're new with us, we have an open table. What that means is that anybody who wants to celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and in particular today, the slain lamb, that gives us the power to endure. 
we would invite you to partake in that. But we want you to hold those elements till the end, and we'll take it all together. While they're passing that out, let's throw up a few implications here. Implication number one, Jesus is worthy to lead us through the most difficult situations. There's nothing so complex that the Lord Jesus Christ can't take you through it. There's never going to be a thing in your life that you will face, endure, be challenged with that will ever step in and go, I've got Jesus trumped. Not even death itself can keep him stuck. There's never going to be a situation in your life where Jesus is going to go, gosh, I don't know what to do with that. Man, I didn't see that one coming. (laughs) You know how people have surprise birthday parties? You know why it's a surprise? Because they didn't know it was coming. You will never have a surprise birthday party for God, ever. (laughs) He'd be like, surprise! Yeah, I, I knew. I just didn't want you to feel bad. Not surprised. In fact, I I know when all of you are leaving, which if I was going to pick something to do at a party, that's what I'd want to know. When can we go home? (laughs) Because I'm so social. Nothing in your life will ever happen that Jesus is going to be surprised by. He is worthy to lead us through our most difficult situations. Next implication our community, the church, usens, needs to be a place that calls all of us back to God's sovereignty and his awesomeness. And I would suggest that this is a radical shift for our culture to get a hold of because I do not believe that the best service of the church is in trying to point out where everybody else isn't measuring up or where is culture falling apart or where do we need to think differently or act differently or whatever. That is not the best use of the church. We are not supposed to be truth bullies. We are supposed to paint a picture of God and heaven that is so compelling, that is so beautiful, that is so true, that there is nothing that would stand in the way as appealing that we would want anything else. Because of that, there's all kinds of situations that we have in our life that are so complex. Like, I don't know if we even know what to do with them. Like, what do we do when weird situations arise and we don't know how to honor the Lord and people are making choices, people that we love, we care about, they're making choices and we're like, "Eh." let's look at our next implication. Whenever you don't know what to do, act like Jesus. It's never going to steer you wrong. And what we often do with that statement is go, well, but how would Jesus tell them that they're wrong? (laughs) If you don't have a clear directive on that answer, there's a reason. Because Jesus may not. And I have a lot of people that want to meet with me in my office and go, well, I have this friend that's going through this thing and I need you to help me figure out how to tell them that they're wrong. 
Like that's maybe not our job. As much as I love people and I hate when people make choices that are ultimately going to hurt them, here's what I know. It is not my job to bring conviction on the world. That's the Holy Spirit's job. And he does a way better job of it than I ever could. It's not my job to save people. That's Jesus' job. He does a way better job of it than I ever could. My job is to act like him. So Romans says, Romans 8.29. We love Romans 8.28. All things work for good to those who love the Lord and called his, according to his holy purpose. I love Romans 8.29. Because those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed into his image. Like you have been chosen to look and act like him. So when you don't know what to do, act like Jesus. Last implication. John's reminder for first century Jesus followers is a reference to people who have already endured the very kinds of opposition each of them are facing now. It's a throwback to the Exodus. It's a throwback in the Revelation. We're going to see him throw back to Babylon. We're going to see him throw back to Assyria. We're going to see him throw back to all kinds of pain that God's people have already endured. His letter calls us to remember the empty tomb. If they could endure without the promise fulfilled, then we certainly have what it takes to make it. That's his appeal in Revelation. It's not for heaven one day. His appeal is that we serve a God who conquers even death. Hang in there. And maybe the lessons that we learn from Jesus is that the things that our culture tells us to pursue, status, power, riches, whatever. And if you, I mean, those things aren't evil in and of themselves. It's the pursuit of those things that takes our eyes off the prize. It's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil, not money itself. But maybe what we find is that when we let those things go and start to look and act like Jesus... This forgiveness, compassion, grace, honesty, integrity, generosity. That sounds hard, but maybe that's the real source of power. Maybe that's the power that actually holds the universe together. Maybe that's the key to actually restoring what sin broke in this world. And God's invitation is to be a part of that. Which may have a couple of applications to communion. Every week we take communion. Every week. Not because it's this routine habit, but because it's a call back to the, the, the very thing that gives us power for living this life. This reminds us that on the night Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body which is given for you. So whenever you eat this bread, do it in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after the dinner, he took a cup. And he said, this cup, it's a new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. So whenever you drink this cup, do it in remembrance of me. Lord, give us the courage to live in the truth of the lamb who was slain. Lord, help us to understand how we separate things of this world and things that are of you 
And Lord, thank you for Jesus, that he is worthy, and that the scrolls can be opened, and that life evermore is ours through Christ. In your name, amen. We hope you've enjoyed this message from Real Life. If you'd like more information on who we are, what's happening in our church, and how you can get involved, visit us on Facebook and Twitter, and visit our website, liferotp.com.